I'm Sherry Minnelli. And I'm Diane Downey. We're from EarthFriendlyHomeowner.com. And we love healthy soil, clean water, fresh air, and growing healthy food. We're inspired to help heal our local community as well as our planet. And welcome back to the Earth Friendly Homeowner Podcast. Today I'm with Rob Avis. And Rob, do you want to give us a little bit of your background and your story? Yeah, so uh, my wife and I, uh, Michelle and myself, uh, are both mechanical engineers. And about seven years ago, we left the oil and gas industry uh, here in Calgary. Uh, We're both mechanical engineers that specialized in pipeline design and facility design. And uh, we both kind of got a little bit disenchanted with uh, our careers. We actually really enjoyed the design of pipelines, um, believe it or not. But um, we felt as though we were supporting status quo, and um, we just kept seeing problems everywhere, and nobody was really talking about the solutions. And so I woke up one day, and being an engineer, I got my calculator out, and I said, okay, how many years do I have on this planet? And I calculated it out, uh, not years, hours, sorry. And it came out to around 600,000 um, life hours of energy. And, and I just kind of sat there and, and wondered whether I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. And serendipitously, I got an email um, and I received this three-minute video clip on YouTube. It's still up today uh, called Greening the Desert by Jeff Lawton. And it totally changed my life. Um, and I quit my job shortly thereafter. And my wife and I travel to Denmark, uh, being engineers and energy nuts, like being very passionate about energy and how it flows and where it comes from and how we use it. Um, we thought that we should learn first about the energy solutions that exist. And so we spent six months in Denmark studying renewable energy. And by the way, um, you know, Denmark is moving to 100% renewables. They should be there by 2020, um, while we're all talking about how it can't be done. <clears throat> Um, wow. So we spent quite a bit of time there learning about all that. And um, at the end of it, we're like, well, so we can repower the world. The technology exists. And that was this was 2008. Um, we don't need any new technology. All, all the models exist within Denmark right now. And they're totally applicable to the United States. They're totally applicable to Canada. Um, and we can talk more about that in depth uh, later in the interview if you'd like. But, um, but how, do we, how do we fuel ourselves? And... Um, and so we started looking into the food system, and the food system is an enormous energy hog. Um, you know, for every calorie of food that you consume from the industrial food system, there's 10 calories of, of hydrocarbon. So if you were um, a fox going around and hunting for food and you had to invest 10 of your own calories for every calorie you were able to, to hunt, you would, you would starve. Um, so we came back to North America. We traveled through the United States, actually, and Mexico looking uh, for sustainable agriculture solution, and then we ended up taking a permaculture design course, um, which completely changed our lives, and we've never gone back to the oil industry. Um, and since then, we've started vergepermaculture.ca, which is our education, permaculture education company. Um, and we recently started our, or broke off the consulting wing, so now we have adaptivehabitat.com, which is our... Uh, which is our consulting branch, and we consult on resilient farms, homes, and acreages. So people hire us to build off-grid homesteads or um, hybrid versions of that where we'll help them to um, 
harvest rainwater, grow their own food, build low energy homes or retrofit existing houses. Um, everything from renewable energy to wastewater to potable water to um, the food systems and how those all integrate together. What impressed you the most in Denmark? What what kind of energy systems were they using? Um, well, I think the primary difference between North America and Denmark um, has nothing to do with technology. And, and that always shocks people. Um, all the technology that we need to do what Denmark is doing already exists in North America, um, and we're using it. Um, the main difference is their social structure. And I know in the U.S., um, the word socialist is like a bad word. Um, and, but I would argue that that word is misunderstood. Um, and I think instead of looking at the type of political system that's employed there, I think it's better to look at metrics like happiness, um, well-being, homelessness, uh, debt levels. And what's interesting about Denmark is that they're the happiest apparently the happiest people on the planet is the lowest debt levels. They have no homelessness. There's no old person that doesn't end up in a high quality care facility at the end of life. Um, their medicine, medical system is uh, free. So everybody has medical care. Nobody pays for university and everybody gets the education that they need. Um, and so they, they, they're a very fulfilled and happy um, country. And, it goes right back down to how the, the very basis of their communities are formed. And so um, back in the 1970s, during the oil embargo that um, that the whole world went through, um, Denmark made a decision uh, with regards to whether they would go nuclear or whether they would try and figure out how to supply the power that they could no longer produce because there was a lack of oil in the market. Um, and so they decided to go the innovative way, and that's Denmark basically became the birthplace of wind. And because wind was a new technology, the way that the Danes decided to um, uh, expand or, or grow the wind industry was um, – and by the way, the first wind company, Vestas, was an, originally an agricultural company. So they had an agricultural tractor implement company build the first wind turbine. And then they basically created uh, tax incentives to encourage communities to invest in their own wind turbines. So every small town or community could purchase their own windmills. And that kind of grew out into cooperatives. So then individuals, so if you live in an HOA or a, um, a, a community, um, what does HOA stand for, by the way, Sherry? Um, homeowner, uh, homeowners Association. So it stands for Homeowners Association, and basically what it is is when a new developer comes in, they are putting together a – they're developing a subdivision. They put in the CCNRs, which are basically the rules and regulations, and anybody who buys a house in the subdivision has to agree to that before they're allowed to buy a house in the subdivision. Okay. So in Denmark, they have they have communities – I'm not going to say they're very similar to that, but uh, essentially, um, any individual or group of individuals could purchase a wind turbine. And um, all the power that was produced by that wind turbine, that money would go towards, um, would go into their bank account. So wind in Denmark was developed uh, cooperative, cooperatively um, in that towns could purchase wind turbines, uh, groups of individuals or even individuals could purchase 
wind turbines. Um, and so at the beginning, when wind turbines started coming out, up until when we were in Denmark in 2008, there had never been one NIMBY or not in my backyard complaint by anybody in Denmark because the people that had to, to put up with, if you will, the, uh, the drawbacks of windmills, which aren't very many, um, but there are some, like it does change the visual um, aesthetic of the landscape. I would argue they make them, they make it more beautiful, but some people don't like windmills. Um, the people that had to put up with the consequences of these windmills were also benefiting from it. So there's an old Dutch saying that your own, um, your own dairy barn doesn't stink or your own pig barn doesn't stink because um, it doesn't stink because you're making money from it. And so, whereas in North America, most of our uh, renewables, especially wind um, and, and even oil, um, it's all corporately owned. So the, the ownership model is quite a bit different in Denmark, and that's why um, they were able to proliferate the wind uh, uh, so quickly over there. Um, and so I think where there's an opportunity within these HOAs that, that, that you guys have down there is, is that there's potentially an opportunity to create um, wind cooperatives, which I know is happening in some U.S. states. Um, so instead of owning a solar panel on the roof, the community could own a series of windmills on adjacent land or within the community itself um, to be self-sufficient on power, as an example. Wow, that's fascinating because I had no idea that they had done that, and I didn't realize how. Um, I, I didn't. I never realized that Denmark was had gone, you know, energy, gas, oil free. So that's, well, they okay. still they still do use some gas. Um, so their power mix comes from biomass, so they burn wood, wind, solar. Um, they have both solar electricity and solar heat, and they also burn all their garbage, which sounds terrible. But um, they, Sweden and Denmark, have turned garbage into a commodity. Um, and what also is really unique about Denmark is that um, I'm not sure how technical to get this, but when a coal plant, for example, produces power, only about 30% of the coal that gets burned goes into the grid. The other 70% goes into heat, and that just gets dissipated uh, into the environment. So coal plants, even natural gas uh, plants, um, even nuclear plants are very, very inefficient. What's different in Denmark is every small town or community, um, have they have district heating systems, which means that all the heat and the power come from this central unit, um, and so if they burn a pound of garbage and 30% of it gets converted to electricity, the other 70% heats up the water, and that water is then pumped around to all of the individual houses. So it was that community-based infrastructure of combined heat and power, the new invention of wind um, that happened in the 70s, um, and then a few other little things that, um, um, that they're developing right now that, will allow Den that is allowing Denmark to go to 100% renewable by 2020. Yeah, I mean, the, the knowledge industry in Denmark, I, I mean, some of the most profitable wind turbine companies have emerged from Denmark, for sure. Vestas is one of them. Um, and there's a number of others which have been purchased and uh, rolled into other companies um, to, to help develop their wind technology, uh, for sure. So when you came home, what did you do with all this information and knowledge? What did you start working on with your own house or your home? your own community? 
Um, well, we've done a lot of retrofits to our own home. Um, I definitely am a, a fan of, of starting in your own backyard. And um, we don't live on a massive acreage right now. We live on fi- a 5,000 square foot lot. It's pretty small. And every square foot of it is, is used up. Um, it's a 1980s bungalow. For those of you who don't know where I live, um, we live in Calgary, Alberta. It's really cold here in the winter, so we can go down to minus 40, and that's the crossover between Fahrenheit and Celsius. So um, it doesn't really matter which, which unit I'm talking about. Really, really cold. Um, and most of our houses are actually built to the same standard as what they, you know, as they would be in California. So we have similar amounts of insulation in a climate that's dramatically different, um, which is unfortunate. So we've, we've completely retrofitted the insulation in our house. We use a tenth of the thermal energy that we used to use, um, and the house is far more comfortable. There's no more drafts. Um, our gas bill is dramatically lower. We, um, we harvest all the rainwater on our property, so it either goes into rain tanks um, or it goes into our gardens or into our food forest. We don't buy any vegetables, even though we have such a small property, uh, pretty much from... Uh, June 1st until, depending on the year, but uh, beginning of October, um, all the way sometimes, yeah, beginning of October, and then we have supplemental vegetables coming out of our passive solar greenhouse, which is in our backyard. Um, We heat most of our hot water with a solar thermal array on the roof, Um, so our showers are, other than the water cost, our showers are free. So we have a small community kitchen in the backyard where we host tons and tons of community events, um, which is our primary mechanism. Um, we, we, we build community through pizza. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that cob ovens? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, we've got a cob oven in the backyard, and it, uh, it lives on a strict diet of um, uh, kiln-dried two-by-fours that come from um, construction projects in other parts of the city. So tell me about some of the newer projects that you've gotten into, because I find them fascinating, and I think that you're really forward-thinking. And- um, so I'm a bit of a nerd, uh, and I think that's maybe what makes me a little different as a permaculture practitioner, because I kind of integrate engineering and permaculture together. And I really uh, am fascinated by thermodynamics. And before you turn the interview off, I'll, I'll I'll kind of explain what that means. It's it's a lot less complicated than it sounds. I basically am very interested in how energy moves. I'm interested both in heat and in cold. And so we've had a couple of uh, projects come through the door recently. One of them, we're actually building a a root cellar. We're designing a root cellar. And so the world is is totally addicted to cooling. Um, A lot of of the sustainability world talks a lot about um, sustainable heating, but we don't talk a lot about sustainable cooling. And so we're um, working on a project where we will be putting uh, earth tubes into the ground. Um, and again, because our winters get so cold, root cellars like to have a steady temperature of about five degrees Celsius. That'd be probably around 40 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on what you're trying to store. And so when it's minus I'm just going to talk in Fahrenheit. Um, When it's minus 40 Fahrenheit outside and your uh, root cellar wants to be around 40 plus Fahrenheit inside, we can't just bring outside air into that root cellar, otherwise it'll freeze all of your food. So we're going to temper all of the winter air in this root cellar by running it through a series of plastic pipes on the ground, um, which will pre-warm the air because it'll take heat out of the ground. And in doing so, it'll freeze the ground. It'll deeply freeze the ground. And what's really neat about that is that 
all winter long, I can freeze this massive chunk of earth on this acreage that we're working on. And then in the summertime, I've got this giant chunk of ice that I've built in the ground. I've never had to go down to any lake and, and haul chunks of ice out of the lake. Um, the ice is in situ. Um, and so those same pipes that were pre-warming the air in wintertime pre-cool the hot summer air um, coming into that uh, root cellar. So I'll, I'll be able to keep that same 40 degrees Fahrenheit without ever having to run a refrigeration device like a, a compressor. And so it's very, very low energy. I can run a small little fan for, you know, 10, 15 watts of power. So I can run that off a photovoltaic or I can plug it in at that small amount of power. And I can keep this root cellar at whatever temperature I want just by managing airflow through these plastic pipes in the ground. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by these low-tech designs that allow us to take um, old technology like a root cellar, which is actually pretty awesome and, and make them a little bit better by applying uh, existing materials that we've got and, and some ingenuity. So that's one of the projects that we're working on. How deep uh, would this root cellar be? Is this like 5 feet or 10 feet or like 100 feet? I mean, this sounds like quite a project. It, could, it varies. This one itself will only be about 4 feet deep, but um, in the wintertime, because it gets so cold, our frost will actually go down 8 feet. So, like, to get the tempering that we want, yeah, we, we definitely have to play around with that. It, it, it's going to depend on the bioregion that we're in, for sure. And this is something you haven't done yet. You're you're just experimenting with this at the at the moment. I haven't done. I haven't used this application of earth tubes, but we have a project, another project that we work with in Invermere, which is a place in British Columbia, which uses the same idea but in, in reverse. We work with a greenhouse that's run by an organization called Groundswell, and they have a 3,000-square-foot passive solar greenhouse. What they do is they have pipes running underneath the greenhouse um, in, a, in something called an annualized geosolar system. And when the greenhouse gets too hot in the summertime, which it always does, um, it turns a fan on, and it pumps that air underneath the slab of this greenhouse. And all summer long, it'll heat this ground up. And the the heating system in the ground, which is extracting heat from the hot air in the greenhouse, is designed so that heat that gets put into the ground in May won't actually uh, come into the space until October. So there's a six-month delay between heat storage and heat utilization. So that means that we can we can capture summer sun and we can move that thermal energy into the wintertime um, and reduce the amount of heating energy that we need to um, invest into that greenhouse uh, in our cold winters. That's just amazing. I didn't realize a six-month window, six months later. Yeah, totally. I mean, we've done some, we did a project um, for a, a small town near Calgary where we looked at um, a feasibility study with regards to whether we could heat the whole town using a district solar heating system. And um, the thing with storing heat in the ground is you'll only ever recover about 50% of it. But um, that's just a, is a physical limitation there. Um, but if you think about it, in the summertime, most of that excess heat in that greenhouse is going to be wasted anyway. So even if we can only get 50% back, we're still laughing, especially if we can use cost-effective, low-tech um, uh, materials to do it. Um, but the key is making sure that you can... Um, you have the ability to get involved in the design 
for that particular system. You got to get involved with the design from the very beginning so that you can put because the the incremental cost to put the system in in construction is maybe a couple thousand dollars. Um, it's very hard to to retrofit that particular system. So tell me about some other projects that you've done or you're thinking about doing. I, I didn't realize thermodynamics could, I, you know, I always remember it from school, from physics, but, you know, wasn't quite sure how I could even, you know, apply it ever. Well, when you get up into our climate, which is quite a bit harder to work with than yours um, in California there, coming back to how we feed ourselves, uh, if you can't manage the heat units, if you can't play around with temperature and when heat exists within the year, you know, we're dealing with 100 frost-free days in Calgary. So we've got like three and a half, four months to grow everything. And then we can't grow. And so if I can manipulate the heat unit, and this will be true for the northern United States as well. If I can manipulate how heat moves in a system, and I can go from 100 to 150 frost-free days or 100, 100 to 200 frost-free days, I've probably doubled or tripled my my production. Um, vegetables, for sure, are non-linear, which means that most of their production happens on the, on the very end of their cycle. So if I can extend a squash plant from 100 days to 150 days, I'll, double, I'll for sure double the production on that plant just by managing heat. Yeah, it's really interesting. Here in Southern California, solar has gotten quite popular. Do you think that overall, I've always wondered this, with manufacturing, how much energy it takes to manufacture it versus what you're getting when you have it on your house, do you think it's worth it? Oh, absolutely. Um, so wind, the payback on wind turbines is about six months. That was, again, back in 2008, so I'm sure it's better now than it was which means that uh, to produce a wind turbine, the wind turbine itself will, will produce enough energy to pay for its manufacturing and mining and everything else within six months. Back in 2008, solar was, I think it was five years, um, which sounds like a long time, but the thing that really bugs me about people who bash solar is that they, they'll bash solar on one hand and then they'll turn around and use their vehicle or turn a light switch on, which is getting power from coal. So if you think about a coal plant, a coal plant will never recover the energy that it took to build itself because it will only ever consume. It will only ever consume more coal. Whereas a solar panel actually harvests free energy from the sun and gives it back to the grid. Okay. A vehicle will only ever consume gasoline. It will never pay for itself from an energy perspective. Do you see the difference? Got it. So do you think that solar, I mean, obviously it's a no-brainer in Southern California when we get so many sunny days, but someplace where my parents are, like in uh, rural Illinois, do you think that solar belongs everywhere, or do you think there's places that it's just not the best um, idea? Oh man, solar is is the technology of the future, um, even more so than wind. Uh, wind does make sense, but it's a technology where you never have to put another cent of fuel into it. So you're basically buying all of your fuel up front, and it's cheap. So you're buying 30 years of fuel in one panel. 
I've, I've spent some time in Illinois and Indiana, and I know it's pretty darn sunny there in the summertime. And yeah, it can be cloudy in the wintertime up there with, with um, the effect of the lakes and, and the um, and the humidity that they get around there. But solar panels continue to produce even in cloudy cloudy conditions. They're less efficient, of course. I think the trick to using solar, I think a lot of people get caught up on the fact that or they think that they have to just, just rely on the solar. There's great, great technology out there now that allows you to create what I call um, – or what can be coined hybrid renewable energy systems. So, you know, just the other day, actually, it was, it was minus, uh, it'd be like, I don't know, zero degrees Fahrenheit here, and our power went off. And the thing that drives me crazy with the way that we build houses in these cold climates in North America is that my house needs both electricity and natural gas to stay warm. The electricity grid in North America is actually getting... It has not been uh, substantially upgraded, which means that a major power outage, like we saw about five or six years ago in the eastern eastern North America, which had 50 million people without power for multiple weeks. If that had happened in the wintertime, we would have been in very, very deep trouble. And so these hybrid renewable energy systems can be set up so that they, not only will they pay for themselves, they'll, they'll give you a better return on investment than... Um, than a mutual fund right now with existing prices. Um, not only will they give you a better return on investment, they never have any stock fluctuation issues, and they can be set up so that um, in the event of a power outage in the middle of the winter time, you could size them so that they could heat your home or, or run your furnace, the electrical portion of your furnace, uh, keep your deep freezes frozen, and run a couple of critical lights off of a small battery bank, which is your backup power essentially, and even in the, in the dead of winter, these things are going to put power back into those batteries. So now you have a truly resilient power system in your house. You're not going to lose that $5,000 of, of meat that you got in the freezer, and your house isn't going to go below zero and freeze all the pipes. Uh, and and you, could, you could make the same argument in California. You could have these hybrid systems that will keep your fridges and, and freezers going when it's really hot in the summertime if the power system happens to fail. love talking to you because... I've been confused. You know, you get on the Internet, and you never know who is who has what agenda there. So, you know, I'd heard very positive things about solar, but I'd heard negative things about solar. And the people with the positive are usually the ones that want to make money off of it and sell it to you. So this is really exciting for me to hear and, and kind of dig down from somebody who's an engineer and really has looked at all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's there's... there's Far more reasons right now. I mean, there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic about life in the world, but there's equally more or as many or more reasons to be optimistic. They just generally don't get reported on. That was the, the big finding of traveling, actually. We came home from traveling around the world with a lot of optimism, and there's lots of reasons to be optimistic. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, you you had discovered the greening the desert, and that was one of the first things I discovered. And before that, I kind of felt morbid, like, well, if I try and be more earth-friendly, okay, I'm just destroying the earth less fast. But I never realized that I could actually improve and help and make such a difference, and, and that kind of set me on my path as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's exciting yeah, to hear but... how that really changed and shifted you and that, you know, you've seen both sides. You've seen the oil industry, and then you've seen the other industry. So solar would be among your top if you were, 
in probably anywhere in the country and you were looking to become a little bit more, you know, off the grid, would would you consider wind if you're sitting close to other houses, kind of like you've got 5,000 square feet of property? I think we do too. Is there a wind component that, that regular homeowners can use or is that something where you need a lot of land? Um, yes and no. It depends. So there's two types of wind turbines. There's horizontal access uh, and vertical access. So they're called HOTs and VOTs, so uh, V-A-W-Ts and H-A-W-Ts. The uh, vertical access turbines make no noise and they're very low risk, but they don't have a huge amount of power output. The conventional ones, that the ones that you would typically be accustomed to seeing, which are the um, horizontal, I might have got that backwards. The horizontal are the ones that you're used to seeing. The vertical ones are kind of strange looking. Uh, verticals make no noise. Horizontals do make noise. The thing is, once you get past certain wind speed, when people start getting concerned about noise, you can't actually hear the noise of a turbine because the, the noise of the wind uh, is so high that, that it drowns out the noise of the turbine. However, you know, there, there aren't, there aren't that many great places for wind turbines uh, from an economics perspective. So you need about, um, generally we say as a rule of thumb, between three and five meters per second as a, of a, a baseline average wind speed. And that doesn't sound like a lot. So that'd be like three yards per second would be very similar. That's an average wind speed. And actually it, it, it's an enormous amount. People who live in an area that have uh, three, three yard per second wind speeds find it very, very windy all the time. And so I, I think there is potentially a place for it. There's, there are a lot of small turbines that could fit within that um, environment. But generally, urban areas um, sh- shun the use of wind, mostly from a risk uh, management perspective, because the better wind is much, much higher. And so you end up having these large poles. So there's an aesthetic issue for people. Um, and then there's also the risk that the tower will fall over and then you have potential for property or damage to life. That's where solar just shines, pardon the pun, but you can put it on any flat surface, even if it's not optimal towards south or north if you're in the southern hemisphere. Um, there's no moving parts. It's, it's totally um, tried and tested technology and, uh, and it works in sunny or cloudy situations. The thing that I think is important to keep in mind um, with any renewable energy is it's important to understand your bioregion. And so I'm a big fan of microhydro if it's possible. Um, I'm a big fan of biomass if it's sustainable. We we design, for example, septic uh, fields, which sounds strange for an ecological guy, but our septic fields are typically designed to grow fuel wood to heat the homes that is that, that are produced in the waste. Um, we can also grow food off of that, or we can grow shelter belts. So biomass is a good option. I'm not against using fossil fuels if they're used um, appropriately. I think fossil fuels are an amazing gift that we've squandered, unfortunately. But there's great ways to use fossil fuels if, if that's the only thing you have access to. And uh, not a huge fan of geothermal, but there can be applications where that makes sense. Okay, yeah, that was going to be my next question. I didn't know anything about geothermal, so I wasn't sure if that was a really incredible thing or not? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to explain over the phone. Generally, if you do a holistic look at geothermal and where the power is coming from, they don't end up netting out better from an environmental perspective. And the thing that really bugs me about geothermal systems is that 
I'm not saying they'll never work. There are situations where they make a ton of sense. But the problem with them, at least up here, is that you can spend thirty to $50,000 to put one of these systems in because they've got to drill big wells and they've got to put in big refrigeration equipment, which is fine. But we're um, in the middle of, uh, we've designed and we're uh, in the middle of construction right now of a house that uh, uses so little energy. There, it's an off-grid homestead. They're siting a 500-gallon propane tank just as a backup. And that's a pretty big, that's a pretty standard size propane tank for a, an acreage up here. That propane tank won't need to be filled for 10 years. The typical house in Calgary on an acreage like that would have to have that filled every year. So they're using a, a fraction of that energy. And so what, what I, I guess what I'm getting at is before you go and invest in creating the energy or capturing the energy, invest in using less of it first. That always pays the biggest dividend. It's the least sexy thing to do, but it's the one thing that will pay the best dividends, and it makes most sense to reduce what you're using first and then replace afterwards. You know, that makes a lot of sense, and it you would think that that would have hit me earlier. I was looking into solar. We still don't have solar. We're just about to start calling companies and, and getting interested in that. But one of my friends had gotten it, and I said, well, what do you think of solar? And he goes, well, it's great, but the first thing you need to do is go around your house, get LED light bulbs installed, reduce as much as you can, and then take a look at you know how much energy you're using for the solar. I thought that was really helpful. So that's exactly what you're saying as well. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not exactly sure geographically in California where you are, but if my gut is that the two things that I would be doing, or maybe three things that I would be doing to optimize your house and houses of, of people around you would be uh, changing, if you can, change the color of your house to a light color to reflect light. Uh, number two, make sure that there are no windows on your house that are unprotected from the sun, in, especially in the summertime. So you can design, if it's allowed, uh, within the architectural constraints, uh, shade shading mechanisms that will cancel the or stop the sun coming into your house. Once that sun goes through the window, that heat is now in your house. You, and typically, you pay big, big bucks to through air conditioning to have that removed. And, and the problem with power that's produced in California um, and Arizona and all these other states down there, I mean, I know it's becoming more renewable. People talk about the embodied energy of electricity, so how much coal goes into a kilowatt hour of power, but nobody talks about the embodied water of, of energy. Uh, well, there is one person, Brad Lancaster is a, a huge proponent of, of the water G uh, nexus, but um, there's an enormous amount of water that gets wasted uh, by power plants through the evaporative process, so it's important to try and reduce any heat coming into your house, all the heat that you can, and so properly venting attics, uh, and rejecting sun are, are really important. And then putting in the right greenery around the house, like just putting in a tree will reduce the amount of um, heat hitting heat hitting the house. Okay, so greenery. Um, you know, one of our previous podcasts, we had talked about gravel because one of the popular things here is, well, if you're going to take out your yard, just put gravel, and that just heats everything up and, and of course, you know, kills any soil that was there that was living Make sure electricity bills go up because you've got to add more air conditioning during the summer. 
Yeah, totally. No, I mean, anything you can do to get biology around your house is um, going to reduce your cooling bill. Not only because it shades the house, but it also, those plants release, um, they're, they're evaporative coolers, basically. So when they transpire, when they put water out through their leaves, they actually cool the whole area around them. So we actually have to reverse the urban heat island effect that we've, we've, we've created. Um, it's, it's especially detrimental in cities like, um, or in, in states like yours. I know in, um, in Houston, they can actually measure that the city is now, that, that bioregion is hotter than it was, not just because of climate change, but because of all the air conditioners pumping heat out of these massive heat magnets, which are buildings and roads. So they've actually altered the climate in the city just by the use of refrigeration, by, by pumping heat out of buildings. That really makes you think about what you're doing in your own yard and how important it is that we start at our own homes before we're, you know, it's important to worry about what government and the city is doing, but really where we need to start is our own houses. Wow. Well, that, that really, that really shifts. I, I had, when I was thinking about reducing my energy bills, personally, I was thinking about the light bulbs and I was thinking, oh, I wonder if I can get insul- more insulation in these walls, you know, and how good the insulation I have is. But, Frankly, you know, I some of those other things I it just didn't even I didn't think about. So I'm glad you brought those up. Yeah, I mean even harvesting rainwater, first use for rainwater would be to, to grow vegetation for sure. But if you had surplus rainwater, you could use the rainwater for evaporative cooling uh processes as well. Okay. So would you would that be an expensive thing to add? Because we are we just started doing the rainwater harvesting here now that we Finally, got gutters in. What would, where would you start with a pro, with something like that? I'm sure that your local irrigation supply has uh, evaporative cooling misters, and so you just need a pump, some pipe, and some uh, some spray nozzles. If you have an out, outdoor space that you want to cool down, you can literally just create a really fine mist, and as those little tiny droplets of water evaporate, they suck energy out of the environment. And in doing so, they, they will reduce the temperature by 3, 4, 5, 10 degrees Fahrenheit and have, have a noticeable effect. You can, you can create an air conditioning-like effect with, uh, with evaporative cooling. Okay. I was thinking that you meant creating an evaporative cooling for inside the house, but you're talking outside. Before this, I would have been, well, at least I'm collecting the rainwater, but I would have felt guilty using all that water you know, for misters. But I guess I, no, I guess what you're saying it's right. It, it it would help reduce the heat around the house, so I could reduce the air conditioning in the house as well. Well, the trick with that is that if you if you've got a properly placed pergola, for example, and you're growing grapevines up up it, and um, and if your house is properly designed, or you do an analysis of the house um, with regards to how to create a stack effect, or um, natural convective current going through the house. If you put the pergola on the right side of the building uh, and then you open the right windows on the, at the top of the house and the pergola, the, the grapevines are naturally sending that moisture, those fine droplets out through it, the process of photosynthesis, you can add to that effect by, by these little misters. The heat that's hitting your house will create a natural convective cycle within the building and it'll draw that moist air into the building and cool the entire house. Oh, And then wow. you, don't even have to, you don't even have to use a fan. Wow. That'll just happen 
through heat transfer. Wow, you're really helping me to think about energy differently. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but is there any other projects that you wanted to talk about or anything that you're doing now that you wanted folks to know about? Yeah, I mean, there's one other project. We helped a couple with, a, I guess it would be called a mobile home. We call them RTMs up here. And uh, generally these things get put on screw piles so they're above the ground. It's funny, in, in Canada, and I'm sure it's the same in the northern United States, we put attic fans on. And so all summer long, our attics get smoking hot, like 150, 160 degrees. Those would be kind of peak temperatures. And we just suck the heat out of them. And then all winter long, we we um, pay for natural gas and electricity to keep these crummy insulated homes warm. And so we got an opportunity to work with a couple that has one of these RTM. And we put in uh, one of these annualized geosolar systems just this last summer. We've got a little fan underneath the, the house itself, and it's got a temperature probe up in the attic, and it's got a temperature probe in the ground. And as long as the attic temperature, whenever the, the attic temperature is higher than the temperature of the earth, this little fan kicks on, and it charges the ground up with heat all summer long. It takes about three years for these systems to get fully charged. But just like we were talking about that greenhouse, the heat that we store in May will emerge out of the ground in September. And so we can generally get the ground up to uh, 90 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit through the course of the, the summertime, depending on how hot the attic gets, of course. And then that heat will slowly radiate underneath this house. And so they're going to end up having this low-tech, I think, I think the whole system costs them $1,500 in materials, plus some labor to put it in. But they're going to end up having uh, this in-floor heating system underneath their ready-to-move trailer, and which will dramatically reduce the heating bill, which is great. But it will also create a warm floor, which is really nice when you're in a, in a cold climate. So the thing that I think is really key to, to consider is that you can't consider any of these projects independently. And I think what, what's different between engineering and permaculture is that permaculture is a very integrated design philosophy. And when you combine engineering, horsepower that engineering brings to the table with an integrative design philosophy like permaculture, you can come up with some pretty powerful designs where we can integrate biology, thermodynamics, mechanics, community, all of those kind of pieces come together and you can do some really neat stuff with it. And I think that's one of the reasons that, that I really resonate with with permaculture and where I've had a lot of fun where those two disciplines intersect. Well, I think it allows you to be so much more creative too. You know, it's kind of mm -hmm. like, it's almost like playing with Legos or something and putting all these pieces together and seeing when you add more pieces, all of a sudden it does something else that you didn't expect or you did expect. Where can people get a hold of you or find, I know that you've got a newsletter and, and a website. Where Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, so our consulting website is adaptivehabitat.com. Sorry, adaptivehabitat.ca. But uh, Virtual Permaculture is where I do most of my blogging. Uh, I read a lot of articles. Um, right now I'm on this weekly newsletter kick where I'm, there's lots of cool ideas going around in my brain. And so I, uh, I write an email every week called On My Mind, and it kind of details out what I'm designing that week or what's interesting around all the 
the stuff that, that we've been talking, you and I've been talking about today. Um, very informative. It's not salesy at all. And uh, I love it. I've, I've been on it and I've been watching it and reading it. So I, I can highly recommend it. Okay. Anything else before we go? No, it's, uh, I think what you're doing is awesome. I think, uh, you know, retrofitting existing infrastructure is so important. It's easy to want to just tear it all down and build it again, but we don't have enough forests. You know, we, we just don't have enough resources to do it over. So we've got to come up with innovative ways to retrofit the suburbs and the inner city and our acreages. And there's tons and tons of brownfield technology out there that's just waiting for somebody to kind of read between the lines and innovate and come up with uh, of new ways of using that, that old stuff. Um, and there's a ton of fun, it's a ton of fun doing it. And it requires a lot of creativity, like you said. So we, we definitely, uh, I, I've been saying this to my students for quite a while. And I think as a closing point, uh, the people that get into this industry that start doing this type of work will be busier than they know what to do with for the rest of their lives. Um, there's so much work to be done out there and we can really turn this ship around. Um, we just have to get our teeth into it, be optimistic and, and start working. Well, thanks again for, for coming on the show. Hey, no worries. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Earth Friendly Homeowner Podcast. Let us know if you have any questions or comments on our website at earthfriendlyhomeowner.com. Please subscribe to our podcast, and we would love for you to give us a review of the podcast.